Welcome to Reader, I Murdered Him, the real podcast about fake crimes you've discovered after listening to literally every other true crime podcast available ad-free on Amazon Music, but before you finished your laundry. I'm thrilled to be part of your temptation bundling today. And don't forget, there's no need to iron t-shirts. That's what the permanent press setting on the dryer is for. If you've been following this podcast for a while, you'll know that today's episode was supposed to air last week, but I got sick. Normally, my immune system is pretty much like steel because I've got preschoolers who are experts at going out into the known world and bringing back every virus known to mankind, and I'm sure a few original ones that only exist in the communal cran bin at school. Um, But this round just knocked me out. And I got the whole deal. Fever, chills, severe fatigue, sinus pain. I even lost my sense of taste for a couple weeks, um, which really sucked because I was the one who had to cook Easter dinner. And I hadn't even been able to enjoy the best part, which is obviously cold ham and cheese sandwiches uh, with Easter candy at midnight after the kids are in bed. Um, I even got the sweet tart jelly beans, which are objectively the best type of jelly beans. Uh, Anyway... I'm feeling well enough to get back to work and might turn the missing episode into a bonus episode later this year, um, or I might just skip it. Basically, just anarchy over here right now. But none of that matters to you, because I'm back this week with a case I know you're going to love. And speaking of anarchy, this week we are going to look at a different kind of criminal case. One that has multiple people serving prison sentences and years worth of headlines attached to it. A case where the convicted might argue their victims either had it coming or were sacrificed for the greater good. Because that's really what today's case is all about. Finding that line between protest and terrorism and weighing the cost of lives saved against lives taken. The problem is that, in this case... All the math is being done by one person in particular, a charismatic monster willing to stack the scales to get what he wants, and an army that follows him without question, even if that means marching to their own deaths. At least it did, until one woman decided she'd had enough and turned her leader in at a shot at a better life on her own, with her infant daughter. I'm your host, Risa P., and this is the story of Nick Harp and his cult, The Army of the Changing World. The Army of the Changing World's first introduction to the public stage came in 1986 with the public execution of Martin Queller, a pharmaceutical and health industry millionaire who, while championing economic theories like the infamous Queller correction, made his money on the prolonged suffering of some of America's most vulnerable patients. It was because of the Queller correction theory that Martin Queller had been invited to speak at the now notorious economic summit in Oslo. And it is because of that same theory one where Queller argues all societal progress happens and must happen on the backs of minorities, or less euphemistically, at their expense, and that this societal burden cannot be changed, lessened, or removed without inhibiting progress, 
and therefore inhibiting society as a whole. So we all need to just live with it. Um, that he became a target of the army of the changing world. But it is because of one man, Robert Juno, that Martin Queller died. Martin Queller was asked to speak on a panel alongside other distinguished economists, including Dr. Alex Maplecroft, an economist best known for her criticism of the Queller correction and the racist ideology it upheld. But because Alexandra Maplecross is an academic rather than a corporate billionaire, and a woman in economics in the 80s on top of that, her face isn't as well known as her work. In fact, witness accounts state Martin Queller was seen treating her as a secretary while they were backstage together, not realizing she was a fellow panelist. So it's not all that hard to believe that, from the very beginning of the panel, Dr. Maplecroft seems hostile to Martin Queller. She's challenging his statements and pushing back with statistically backed research she seems to have collected for the sole purpose of using against Queller in this public format. And she doesn't stop with informed disagreement. Dr. Maplecroft pushes her advantage, shifting the whole discussion onto the topic of Queller healthcare, specifically the inpatient group homes for mentally ill patients that require full-time care. Facilities that generated over 30% of all Queller Healthcare's profits. And here's a little bit about how those facilities worked. Depending on the type of mental illness a patient is suffering from and how that illness manifests, it may be impossible for them to return to their homes for care. They may need 24-hour surveillance or they may be prone to unexplicable violent outbreaks that make it impossible for them to be around their families. This can also mean that they are unable to stay for treatment at a hospital and require full-time medical care under the supervision of highly trained professionals. Facilities like Robert Juno was one of these individuals. He was a black engineer educated at Caltech under the GI Bill after serving his country in the military. He was given an honorable discharge and started a life with his wife and children. His family loved him, his neighbors loved him, his co-workers loved him. And then Robert Juno had an accident at work that caused severe head trauma. His whole personality changed and he became violent. Even after his initial injury had healed, his wife couldn't take care of him. And the wait time for VA hospitals was too long. So Robert Juno's family did the only other thing they could do, have him admitted to a Queller group home. But here's the thing about for-profit medicine. It doesn't always make decisions with the patient's best interest in mind. And these group homes were paid a very different rate for short-term versus long-term care patients. And this meant there was an incentive for the group homes to keep patients for the longest amount of time that constituted a short stay discharge them, and then wait for the patient or patient's family to try and have them readmitted. So even though Robert Juno needed long-term care and had a history of physical violence, he was cycled through six different Queller group homes on this system. And after his sixth stay, he returned to his home only to suffer a severe mental break where he murdered his children, attempted to murder his wife, and then turned the gun on himself. 
After recovering from her own injuries, Laura Juno had to go home and plan funerals for her husband and children. And in her grief, Laura Juno decided that if Martin Queller hadn't been cold-hearted and greedy, her family would still be alive because her husband would be getting the treatment he needed instead of being shuffled around like a pawn in a game of health insurance premiums. And that is why Laura Juno decided to impersonate Dr. Alex Maplecroft and get on the same stage as Martin Queller, where she leveled her accusations at him in person before pulling out a gun and shooting him in the chest before turning the gun on herself. Now, it seems like we could pretty easily write this incident off as the isolated actions of a woman driven insane by grief and with nothing to lose, owing to a terminal cancer diagnosis detectives uncovered during their investigation of this crime. And Laura does have a solid motive. She gave a speech about it before she murdered Martin Queller. But investigators still have a hard time believing she acted alone. One reason for this was how Laura Juno could have pulled off her impersonation of Dr. Alex Maplecroft and smuggled a loaded gun into a secure location crawling with security. It's unlikely that a woman with Laura Juno's limited resources could have organized that without at least some additional help. And then there's the matter of Dr. Alex Maplecroft herself, who hasn't been seen for days and, at this point in the crime, is presumed to have been abducted and being held in a secure location. Laura Juno couldn't have pulled that off herself. But Nick Harp and the Army of the Changing World could have. Are you desperate for good mental health support, but don't feel comfortable sharing the details of your life with someone who has the freedom to move around in the world and do things like act on their responsibilities as a mandated reporter? Have you jumped to the extreme conclusion that the only way you can really be honest with your therapist is by abducting him and holding him in your basement, disclosing all your dark secrets while he disassociates and relives all the poor decisions that have led him to this point in his life? Void Space is here to tell you that this isn't your only option. Utilizing the best AI chatbots on the market, Void Space Unlimited Texting gives you access to the conscience nature never bothered to give you. With human-like responses, our AI therapists will never tell you your behavior is appalling or threaten to call the police as soon as they figure out how to escape from the walkout basement in your mom's house. They just listen. Void Space, for when your compulsions have you on the fast track to a starring role in a true crime documentary that would not make your mother proud. The Army of the Changing World had cells in several places across the U.S., but for today's episode, I'm going to focus on the New York-based cell, because this was the one that Nick Harp spent the most time with personally and also because this is the cell we have the most information about, because the woman who would eventually turn him in was based in this cell, and so this is the group we have the most information on. 
Relying heavily on this informant's testimony, we know that the shooting in Oslo was the Army's first real act of terrorism as a militant group. Before that, they lived the way a lot of cults live, in isolation, with Nick feeding them on a constant diet of optimistic propaganda until everyone became so immersed and enmeshed in his worldview, taking action seemed like a moral imperative. And Nick seemed to know exactly what he was getting people into. He would constantly have members of the group exercising and running raid scenario walkthroughs at all times of the day and night. From lifting up mattresses to block windows from sniper fire to barricading doors and evasive driving. None of these are your typical workout routine, and they served the dual purpose of keeping Nick's adherents busy and focused on the mission anytime he called on them, to desensitizing them to the kinds of violent situations he knew they'd be getting into, making his followers feel like these were normal situations. And when police discover Dr. Maplecroft has been abducted, Nick's followers have their first taste of what it really means to be a wanted terrorist cell. The house they're holding Dr. Maplecroft in is raided, and they're forced to use all their training to escape. They travel across a ladder extended across second-floor windows into an abandoned building and through service tunnels into a fully loaded and waiting getaway van. But in the fray, Dr. Maplecroft is killed, along with a member of the army. This makes what they're doing more real for the other members of the army, who hadn't intended for anyone innocent to die. Until this point, things had been very specifically targeted on Martin Queller and the Queller family businesses. Crimes the army considered as good as victimless because of all the terrible, but technically legal, things Queller was engaged in. Things the army knew about in intimate detail because two of its members, Jane and Andrew, are Quellers themselves. Jane Queller first met Nick Harp when Andrew brought his new friend home from college. But at the time, neither boy was interested in becoming a political dissident. Nick was passionate about everything, constantly flitting from idea to invention to enterprise with enough passion to sweep up everyone in his wake before moving on to other ideas. Andrew, on the other hand, was only interested in drugs, and had been for as long as Jane could remember. Her whole childhood was bent around the shape of her brother's addiction and the million different heartbreaks the family members of people suffering from addiction have to experience. And then Nick and Andrew are arrested for cocaine possession, and the Queller's money can't make it go away. It seems like rock bottom for Andrew. But then Nick gets him clean, gets him back on track for a life focused on something other than getting high. And Andrew feels like he owes Nick his life. Something Nick may not outwardly leverage, but which he subtly plays on to ensure Andrew's loyalty. Especially when Nick finally finds an obsession that sticks. Taking down the corrupt Queller healthcare. And who better to get him access than Andrew Queller himself? In fact, every member of the Army of the Changing World has been institutionalized for mental illness or addictions, the details of which only Nick knew, 
because Nick made it his business to get medical files on all his followers so he could know everything about them, including which buttons to push to ensure their loyalty. The only person without this kind of leverage was Jane Queller, who'd never been to a facility like her brother. But Nick had another way of keeping Jane loyal to the cause. He made her fall in love with him. In fact, at the time of the Oslo shooting, Jane Queller was pregnant with Nick's child. There were a lot of factors that led to the army and Nick's unraveling. But if Jane Queller hadn't been pregnant, she may never have finally gotten the courage to not only turn on Nick, but to see him for the person he really was. Because while Nick was filling the minds of his followers with high-minded ideals about changing the world for the better, he was also systematically utilizing their past mistakes and insecurities to keep them from finding a life outside of his influence even going so far as to tailor his own life story to more closely match their own individual traumas. Like in Jane's case, he would talk about his childhood in a physically abusive home with a mother who prostituted herself for drugs, putting her next high ahead of her son's well-being. Because Jane's own childhood had been tortured not only by her brother's addiction, but also by her own father's consistent abuse. He held Jane captive to him by constant reminders of how Martin Queller had ruined her life, as well as his desperate need for her to support him, going so far as to threaten suicide if Jane were to ever leave him. Which Jane would never do. Not to the poor, broken boy who saved her brother from his addiction. Except, as it turns out, Nick Harp wasn't that boy at all, which investigators find out as they begin to dive into the organization they are becoming more and more sure is a cult. The Nick Harp of the Army of the Changing World wasn't always Nick Harp. His real name was Clayton Morrow, and his childhood was far from the tragic tale he spun for Jane. His father was a pilot, his mother was a member of the PTA. Clayton Morrow was one of five children, and while his childhood wasn't perfect, it was a far cry from the one he'd shared. The real Nick Harp did go to Stanford, but was a heroin addict who overdosed after buying drugs from his dealer, Clayton Morrow. Clayton stole Nick's life story, his name, and then set off to make himself infamous. The Army of the Changing World has two targets after shooting Martin Queller. One was the Mercantile Exchange in Chicago, and the other a similar spot in New York City. Jane Queller was at a safe house in Illinois working with her fellow soldiers to make bombs and convince themselves the loss of innocent life would be vindicated by their message and the change it would create in the world. But Jane is souring on this message and the man behind it. She isn't sure she wants her baby growing up under Nick's influence, and she's remembering things Nick claimed to have done for her own good that no longer sit right in her mind. Like beating her and then taking pictures of her battered and bruised body to get her brother to agree to ruin her father, 
claiming Martin was the one who left those bruises on Jane. Or how Nick refused to tell her that her brother Andrew was dying of AIDS because he didn't want Jane distracted from their mission. So Jane stands up to Nick, knowing it means she and her baby will need to give up everything and run where he won't be able to find them. So Jane Queller goes to the police and makes a deal. She's not in time to stop the Chicago attack, but the planned attack in New York never happens. Clayton Morrow and the other members of the army are arrested. Andrew dies from his disease, but not alone in a safe house, in a hospital surrounded by medical professionals and his sister nearby. And then Jane Queller disappears, with rumors placing her and her baby in witness protection, where they could lead lives far away from the influence of Clayton Morrow. At least for a while. Thank you for listening to Reader, I Murdered Him. Um, I know this episode was a little bit shorter than usual today. Um, I'm still not feeling great. But if you want more details about the Army of the Changing World or the whole story of what happens to Jane Queller and her daughter in Witness Protection, check out Pieces of Her by Karen Slaughter. And if you've read the book or seen the Netflix show and want to talk about it, Join the Goodreads group by following the link in the show notes. If you want to get in touch with me personally, send an email to readerimurderedhimpod at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening, and don't forget to come back next week for another episode of Reader, I Murdered Him. Salvis Mr. Lee.